Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Lord Jesus Christ, be with the one who speaks, for he is chief among sinners. Amen. I want to speak with you on the podcast today about one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Genesis. And it's difficult enough that I wanted to address it through our church podcast instead of doing it live because it's one of those passages that addresses the reality of sexual assault. While a normal sermon is maybe five or six pages typed out, uh, to make sure that I could give this difficult passage everything that um, it was due that I could appropriately address this page, my notes for this um, time together are 10 and 11 pages long. I'm talking about a passage that has been historically called the Rape of Dinah. And it's a story um, that has a number of added levels of complication beyond this question of sexual assault. Ours is the world of the Me Too movement. Uh, The role that women play in our society now is vastly different and better. I'm I'm giving it the value judgment. Uh, It's better than the way that the ancient world uh, the roles of the ancient world had for women. And, and so it's going to be harder for us to cross the bridge of history, as one interpreter famously said. It's going to be harder for us to cross the bridge of history with this text than it is with most others. Because uh, in our understanding of gender and sexuality, it's different. And again, in most cases, it's better than what the ancient world understood. And so my hope is that we're going to have a chance to explore this rarely traversed text and pull something out of it with some meaning and grace. That's my hope uh, to spend some time with you talking about today. And I want us to get working in that direction. I want us to reflect on a moment perhaps when someone you loved got into real trouble. Uh, Maybe you had a kid that got into a fight at school and the consequences of that fight uh, were longstanding in terms of his academic involvement or something to that effect. Maybe you had friends in college who got kicked out of college. It was a life-altering event that had long-term implications for the rest of their life. Maybe you know someone who got in trouble with the IRS. Maybe you know somebody who had to file for bankruptcy. Um, I want us to think about these things because oftentimes there's this line that can be crossed between a problem that is reconciled easily like hurt feelings, misunderstandings, miscommunications, something that an apology can work through and there can be reconciliation. But sometimes there's a line that is crossed um, where it's difficult to foresee the situation coming through where mercy and justice and peace can kind of come together as a result. Um, Is it true that some crimes really are unforgivable? Is it true that some bells cannot be unrung? Is it possible to find reconciliation in most difficult circumstances instead of settling for the lesser, um, immediately gratifying, but ultimately less satisfying emotion of uh, retribution? 
Is there something beyond retribution that we can hope for for the great sins of this world? And that's what I want us to ask and think about as we approach this text from Genesis 34. This is a passage that outlines a number of wrongs committed by both the family of Jacob and this Canaanite family. We're going to call on our reading today the family of a man named Hamer, H-A-M-O-R. And as these two families collide, we're going to see just how hard it is for life to go back to normal after this line has been crossed. And so here's how the story begins. This is the beginning of Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. A couple of introductory notes here to help us out. Dinah, you'll remember, is Jacob's only daughter. One daughter, uh, 11 sons at this point. And the text tells us that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. And there's a lot going on in that sentence that's worth unpacking here because the ancient world would have read this particular phrase and and given pause. Uh, Dinah is unmarried uh, at this point. And because she's unmarried, we can guess that she was fairly young, a teenager, maybe 16 or something to that effect. In the ancient world, a young unmarried woman uh, of that age traveling by herself, unaccompanied as the text points out, um, that's something that is uh, dangerous. Um, that would be presenting herself in a dangerous way to the community around her. Um, it's one of those things where where there's no police to call 911 when things go wrong, when there's a bad man around. There's, there's no uh, real protection for you outside necessarily of your family and good Samaritans. And so the ancient wor- world, as readers will be reading this, they would say, wait a second, what is, what is Jacob doing letting his only daughter uh, out and about like this? Um, this is not like our modern world where, you know, we're going to talk about victim blaming in a little bit here. We're not blaming her for this, but I do think there is something about Jacob in this reading where Jacob makes a terrible parenting decision to let her go out and about at such a young age at a time when uh, there isn't as much of a reasonable expectation for men or women that traveling alone is a safe and secure thing to do. So questioning parental decision on Jacob's part. Um, But not only this, but Dinah is traveling to go out to meet the women of the land. The Canaanite people living uh, around Jacob, they're not exactly good people. Um, God's already made this clear in Genesis 15. uh, God says, look, the reason I'm giving you this land, Abraham, to you and your descendants, the reason I'm giving you this land is because this particular people, uh, the Amalekites is what it says, but really it means Canaanites. This people is wicked. They're wicked. They are wicked. They're abhorrent. They have a whole lot of terrible religious practices. Um, And so God's making plans to kick this culture, this people, out of this region and give it to people who are supposed to sort of better understand and better fulfill the promises of God to the rest of the world to be a light to the nations. Um, and so God's got plans for this world to be, for, for the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be separated, uh, to be different from the rest of the world around them. So Abraham and Isaac, when it comes time to find their kids' spouses, they don't marry the girl next door. They don't look. They send their sons 600 miles away up into a region called Turkey. And inst- they do that instead of uh, settling down and finding some local girl to be with. Because they don't want to intermarry. They don't want to bring in these other customs of these people who are in the surrounding culture. They're nomads. They're keeping to themselves. They don't want to be involved with the world around them. Uh, And so the fact that Dinah is going out to meet with the women of the land, 
She's not just flirting, um, you know, going for a social call. She's flirting with ungodly customs and a culture that's destined for destruction. So at the beginning of the story, we see Dinah going out. This is not a good idea from the very uh, get-go. And this is a real questionable move on Jacob and maybe Leah as well as parents. It's a questionable move for them to let her go out. And here's sadly what happens next. Uh, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And so Dinah is sexually assaulted by a regional prince, uh, the son of a city's ruler. And the text is unambiguous that their encounter was not consensual. And this was really, again, I can't stress enough that this was a very sexist time. It was not a good time if you were a woman normally, but it's even more pronounced here because, you know, if a young man goes out and sleeps with another woman, he's sort of just sowing his seed and, you know, boys will be boys. But the woman he sleeps with will be forever branded a harlot. She will be unmarriable uh, and her future is completely thrown off its tracks. She's now unmarried. She's now unmarriable, Dinah, because of what happens. Uh, and so she would likely, in this instance, grow old, have no kids, have no family. She would act in some ways as a servant to the rest of the family and be dependent on them for her livelihood. And so this young prince gets a moment of brief physical pleasure. But Dinah's life in this culture, the consequences of that, is that her life and her future are ruined. Again, the ancient world is a sexist place. This is how things were and not how they should be. I want to underline that for certain. So let's keep going in our reading. Now Jacob had heard that the prince had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of the prince, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Such a thing must not be done, right? In the ancient world, um, they agree, you know, like rape is a terrible thing then and now. So we have that in common. And in the ancient world, this kind of behavior as exhibited by the, the prince, this sort of dishonoring, morally outrageous act, has the potential for a feud, a war, retribution between Jacob's people and the people of this wicked prince. Uh, that this sort of dishonoring activity is the sort of stuff that can really spark bloodshed uh, in terms of how one people treat another. This was an honor and shame culture. And so the fact that this prince treated uh, the, the, the daughter of Jacob so disgracefully uh, is shaming not just to her, but to her family. And so Hamor comes out of the city, this prince, right, comes out of the city to Jacob to try to figure out how to make amends before bloodshed happens. That's what's happening in this back and forth here. And Jacob, you know, he recognizes that when his sons hear what what happened, uh, they're going to be, they're going to be, how would I phrase it? They're going to be livid. They will be filled with anger and bloodlust. And so he doesn't tell them at first. He, He lets them stay out in the field. He keeps his peace is what the text says. And he's hoping to kind of have this uh, conversation and figure out a way, can this be reconciled? Can this be resolved without resorting to 
ancient blood feuds uh, over uh, this matter? It's a good question, and, and we're going to see if Hamor and Jacob can come up with an answer and a solution to this uh, that makes sense and can kind of smooth things over and not lead to bloodshed and all-out war. And so here's what happens. Hamor comes with a proposal. He says, here's a peaceful solution to this issue, Jacob. Hamor speaks to them, uh, Jacob and his brothers, saying, The soul of my son Shechem, the, the prince, the soul of my son the prince longs for your daughter. Please give him, give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get prosperity in it. And the prince also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price, a gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now look, our modern ears rightfully hear this with terror because, yes, they're talking about arranging a marriage for a woman to marry her racist. It's not a happy solution in the ancient world either, frankly, but the reality is, is there are worse solutions. In the age of arranged marriages, Hamor and Jacob are entertaining the fact that Dinah now has another solution for her future on the table. She could become the princess of the city. She could have a family and a future. She could have a future to look forward to besides growing old and becoming a family spinster. And the young prince, right, the one who, um, the, the, the one who did commit sexual assault, um, he comes in too with his own words of repentance and his own words to smooth things older. Over, he says, please name your bride price. He's offering both to marry Dinah and apologize for his actions and to compensate the family for the wrong he's done. So this, this prince falls in love with Dinah and he wants, he desperately wants to be with her after sleeping with her the one time and, and forcing it on her, which is not great. But in this conversation, in this back and forth, what they're trying to do is they're trying to settle a moral failure. They're trying to settle this tragic um, thing that happened to Dinah in a way where people don't have to die uh, because of the insult and the honor and the shame. That's what's going on in this back and forth. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the solution is a good solution, but it's a solution that Jacob and Hamar agree to. It's a solution that preserves the peace. It theoretically ends the blood feud between these two families, between Jacob and his nomadic tribe and Hamor and his city. And it provides a future for Dinah where she could prosper in an ancient world with few opportunities left for her to do that in other circumstances. And so Jacob agrees, Hamor agrees, the prince agrees. We don't know if Dinah had thoughts on this situation. Her silence on the matter in our text reflects the onerous nature of the situation. You'll notice that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in this entire ordeal at all. Uh, some Jewish commentators look at this text, and when they see that God's name is not mentioned, they say, well, thank God, because this is an example of man trying to work this out and it goes so badly that if God's name was associated with any of it, we would be embarrassed for God. And I think there's something to that. And so this man-made solution comes forward. And while the fathers are making this arrangement, the sons of Jacob add a stipulation to the agreement. The sons say, we cannot do this thing. 
to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace for us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, we will take our daughter, our sister, and we will be gone. And on the surface level, this looks like the 11 brothers here are assenting to the agreement with the added stipulation that the people of Hamor City be circumcised. And we've been through this before in our series in Genesis that that connecting male circumcision, it seems brutal to us, but in reality, it was sort of like getting a tattoo or getting your ears pierced. It was a body modification that symbolized identity in that vein. And so the request is not that unusual per se. In, in fact, it's a almost a way of binding these two families if we assume that these brothers have goodwill because now you have this circumcised uh, nomadic tribe of Jacob and the circumcised city of Harmer, of Hammer, and um, they're going to marry each other. They're going to build. They're going to build an alliance. They're going to come together and build this uh, prosperous agreement where everybody wins, and they're going to have circumcision as an identity marker. But the text tells us that this demand was not made by the brothers of Dinah with good intentions in mind. In fact, it was made with deception and deceit in mind. Either way, the deal is struck. Um, The men of the city, um, here's how the the story continues on. Uh, Dinah is married off to the prince. There's some negotiation between Hamor and his people back at his place. Uh, Things seem to settle down. And at first, we can think that the situation that could have ended with sort of feud and bloodshed has come to a resolution. Now it's simply time for the men to heal up from their recent body modifications and enjoy their newfound alliance with Jacob's powerful nomadic tribe. But that's not how the story ends. On the third day, this is from Genesis 34 still, when the men of the city were sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Harmer, they killed his son. With the sword, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives and all that was in the houses They captured and plundered. Two of Dinah's brothers, you see, Simeon and Levi, take the occasion for this citywide circumcision to attack, presumably with some servants working underneath them while the men were still recovering, and they were all slaughtered. Hamor, the prince, every man of the city. All the women and the children were taken as slaves. All the livestock and the valuables are taken as plunder. The city is destroyed and the family of Dinah gets their retribution instead of their justice. And Jacob, in this instance, is livid at his children. He goes at them. He's very concerned. He says this, You have brought me trouble by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob is livid. 
He's saying, look, you two have now put a massive target on our backs from every city and every community in this region. The safety of our family is in danger. I tried to avoid bloodshed. I tried to keep us safe by navigating this peacefully. But if all of these cities and communities around us, if they gang up on us, we are all dead. But the brothers don't buy it. They say to their father, should he, the prince, treat our sister like a prostitute? And it's an equally valid reply. Are we just going to let this wicked city treat our sister like trash, they ask? They deserved everything that they got for how they treated our family. And so Jacob, you see, he wants to keep the peace. He doesn't want to go to war. He doesn't want to see bloodshed. But the text also wants us to see that in giving Dinah over to this wicked family, justice was not done. That Jacob was more afraid of the retribution than doing right by his daughter. And so these two sons, Simeon and Levi, take matters into their own hands. And we are actually to look, if you read this whole chapter, we are to look upon their actions as justified. Uh, That they sought out retribution uh, because they couldn't get it uh, on their own. Their father couldn't do it, and so they went out and, well, they got some justice for their sister themselves. And it's only after this point in the story that God enters. Because we're at the end of chapter 34 after going through all of that. And now we transition into chapter 35 where God steps in. Because the city is destroyed and the wrath of this entire region turns toward Jacob's family. And God gets involved. Because Jacob is back to fearing for his life. His life, his tribe's life, his family's life. And he receives a word from God in the middle of this fear. God says, Jacob, it's time to move. Go back to Bethel. Now, that's a big deal. Go back to Bethel, right? Because that's the place, you'll remember, where Jacob had a dream about a ladder coming down from heaven. It's Jacob's ladder place. This is the last time, the last time that Jacob went to Bethel, he was worried about his life too. It was just him by himself, of course, but he went there fleeing from the wrath of his brother after he had deceitfully treated his brother and stolen away his birthright. And so God says to Jacob, go back to the last place you went when I protected you uh, when someone was out to murder you. And to his credit, that's what Jacob does. He packs up his nomadic tribe and returns to the place he met God and the place where God saved him the last time he was in mortal danger. And here's what happened. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell on the cities that were around him so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar in the place called El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And so instead of being pursued by the cities of the region and attacked for their treatment of Hamor and his prince, son, and his village, the whole region lets Jacob go. They're terrified of the wrath of God. They're terrified that even maybe Jacob and his family would do the same thing to them. And so they're terrified. And they, Jacob is able to leave that region with his family in safety. And he goes and he builds an altar and they worship God in thanksgiving. I mean, what can possibly be said for this text? What can possibly be said? Why would... Moses, why would the author of Genesis want us to read this uh, text as something that had happened? I'm sure a lot of things happened in this ancient family. Why specifically tell us about this text that presents humanity at its worst? 
rape, murder, sexism, deception, all of those things are here. Well, I have a few thoughts about what we might take away from this reading as we close. Um, first, this is a text that helps paint a picture for what is going to follow in the book of Joshua. And for those of you who aren't Bible know-it-alls, Joshua is the first book of the Bible to follow the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, right? Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the first five books of the Bible. And they catalog this family and everything that goes on with them, including, you know, Moses, let my people go. And they out, the, the people of Israel come out of Egypt and go into the promised land. And Joshua takes over in what's called the conquest of Canaan, where the people of Israel go to war against the people of Canaan and take the land from them. And this text serves as a kind of justification for this sort of thing. One of the reasons the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob gives this reason to um, give the, gives this region to uh, the people of Israel is because its inhabitants, the Canaanites, are a particularly wicked and brutal people. But we read elsewhere in scripture about how this community, they practiced child sacrifice, they had cultic prostitution, they did a number of other wicked things in how they lived their lives. And one of those wicked things that happened in our reading is that the prince of a uh, Canaanite village sexually assaulted one of Jacob's daughters. And so it's a stand-in for the wickedness of this entire population, a population that Abraham and Isaac and, well, now Jacob, are going to try to stay isolated from in their nomadic lifestyle. So that's one takeaway from the story, that despite um, Hamor's attempts to bring peace, uh, the Canaanites are bad news. They're not a people to hang around with. Second thing we can take away from our reading is that um, this text outlines the passing on of an undesirable family trait from one generation to the next. I'm talking about this pattern of deception. The plot that Dinah's brothers hatch is, I mean, it's diabolical in the worst kind of way, right? It's absolutely wicked what they decide to do. They take this sacred ritual of circumcision and they use it as an opportunity and a pretense for revenge and murder. Some, I mean, imagine somebody, you know, doing this in our own time where they maybe poisoned a communion chalice so that someone came for the blood of Christ and, and died. Or maybe someone was came forward for, for baptism and they were drowned in murderous intent instead. It's a level of deception that equals and amplifies what Jacob and Esau experienced as young adults. And so keep this in mind because there's soon going to be another great deception that the sons of Jacob carry out in, our, in, in the book of Genesis. And one that's going to have implications for decades and generations to come. Jacob was a deceiver in his youth. And it seems his sons, his 11 sons at this point, have not fallen far from the family tree. It's the second thing to take away from this reading. Third thing to take away is this is a text that justifies the goodness of God's law. Now, by our own modern ears, when we hear God's law described as eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, um, the description sounds harsh and demanding. In reality, in the ancient world, eye for an eye would have been uh, seen as a moderating force in an honor-shame society. It would have been seen as a justice-enforcing uh, force, as it were, in this honor-shame society. In a time with no police to speak of, offenses were solved by force and violence, and this city, represented by this prince, did something to Dinah to humiliate her. And, 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 and it really humiliated the entire family. 
And so to regain honor and social standing, Jacob's family, not Jacob, mind you, but the rest of the family, felt like they had to do something. There was nothing they could do other than seek retribution instead of justice. And so the city must be punished for its offenses to Jacob's family, and his sons carry that out. Conversely, right, one of the things that's really tragic about this text is that the zeal of Dinah's brothers to exact uh, retribution, it's not an exaggeration to say that the ungodliness of the situation is not extinguished, but it is multiplied by how they treat the people of this city. Right, deception and murder and the plundering of an entire city for the sins of their prince. That's not justice, which that's, you know, God's about justice, and this wasn't necessarily justice. Retribution really is the better word. Sort of revenge and and comeuppance and payback and, and escalation all together. And if you look at the result of what happens, that the brothers took all of the women of this city away to be their slaves, the problem compounds itself even further because some of those women were very likely forced to be serving as concubines, and so the cycle repeats itself. One woman is mistreated, and as a result, one of the, the ending takeaways is that a whole village of women have then become mistreated. And so when we look at this in our text, we should take a look and say, yes, well, you know, okay, they went and destroyed the entire village for what they did, but is there some better way of handling this where people don't have to be destroyed and their husbands don't have to be killed or they don't have to be taken away in slavery? And God's law comes forward in the book of, Mo in the book of Exodus and, and beyond. God's law comes forward and it's good because it sets up very clear rules and expectations about how to navigate these matters with justice instead of rage and retribution. We call this the first use of the law in theological terms. God's law helps us navigate and live an orderly life. It's sort of like a, a stoplight, an ethical stoplight. It gives everyone a common language for how to navigate the rules of the road. And so in Israel's future, when Moses gives Israel the law, the punishment for sexual assault will still be very severe but it will not lead um, to the execution of an entire village and the subjugation of its women. The law of Moses is going to help rein in this desire for retribution. And so that's three things I want to share. And I want to share one last thing here because I want to say a word about justice and crossing the line. Because although the text seems to outline that Hamor and his sons come to arrive and, and talk to Jacob about this matter hat in hand, they, they looks like they're trying to make restitution for the wrong done and make peace with their neighbors. I'm really not sure that a bargain for peace in this situation could have been possible. I mean, what can you do? How much money can you give? What does a settlement look like in this situation? Um, when um, this family comes and said, we've done a terrible thing to your daughter and we need to make amends by it. Is there something that could have satisfied um, Jacob's sons? Is there something that could have, have moved forward here? It certainly feels like a line has been crossed. One of the tragedies of being a human being is that we're capable of committing offenses that are impossible to atone for. I'm going to say that again because I want us to think about it. One of the tragedies of being a human being is that we are capable of committing offenses that are impossible to atone for. Even under this eye-for-an-eye system, it's within the realm of possibility that you or I, one, could commit an offense that we cannot make restitution for. 
uh, in a previous life, in a previous job, um, I, I had one of these situations. I needed to take the company's box truck to go pick up a big order. It wouldn't fit in my car, so I had to go take the company truck. Sure, I got the truck out, I got the order picked up, it's all secured in the back, and I'm coming back with the company truck. And um, as I'm coming back into uh, the, the return the truck and unload it, as I'm coming back to do that, I was cut off by another driver. And I had to sideswipe to miss, and I ended up hitting a utility pole as a result. And so not only did I scrape up the side of the company box truck, but I damaged the lift controls at the rear of the truck. I very likely caused my employer tens of thousands of dollars in damages to the truck. And frankly, I didn't have tens of thousands of dollars to repay him. I still don't have tens of thousands of dollars to repay him. Thankfully, the company had an insurance policy for instances like this, so they weren't stuck out of luck. But otherwise, I would have committed an offense that I could not have reimbursed. And that's just a truck. It only gets worse when the stakes get bigger. In 2017, The New Yorker did a profile on people who were responsible for the accidental death of another person. And so one of the people they profiled in the story, a woman pseudonymed Patricia, was driving to work one morning, and the rising sun was at the perfect angle to temporarily blind her. So the sun was at, she turned a corner, the sun was up, and it was out, and the sun hit her eyes, and she couldn't see for a hot second. And it temporarily blinded her, and she felt her car jolt as if it had hit a deer, But when she pulled over to the side of the road to check her car, she saw that a motorcyclist had been thrown off of his bike and that he had died instantly. And so here's what happened next for Patricia. For two nights, Patricia couldn't sleep. This is from the New Yorker profile. Every detail came back to her. The curve of the road, the quote-unquote pink matter ground into the asphalt. Her husband, not knowing what to do, took her to the ER, and within a few minutes of the initial consultation, she was sent to the suicide unit, where she remained for six days. After her release, friends visited to cook her dinner, to clean the house, but she couldn't stand how they kept telling her it was just an accident. She went to upteen different counselors, but none were helpful. She sent a letter to the state's attorney asking him to please put her away. I spent my whole life volunteering for animal shelters for Make-A-Wish, she told me. This just negates every good thing I've ever done. Did you catch that at the end? This just negates every good thing I've ever done. Patricia wants to be put in jail. She's volunteering to go to jail for what she did. She wants to make amends and settle this cosmic balance sheet. She wants to reconcile, but the man to reconcile with is dead. It's simply not possible. In the same article, a mental health expert says, if you're responsible for someone else's accidental death, guilt and shame are appropriate emotions. They are telling you you need to do something to atone or make amends for your error. But in this case of accidental death, and in the case of dinosexual assault, what could possibly be done to make amends? How could those wrongs ever be set right? How can a sin be redeemed once this line has been crossed? Maybe the prince could have offered his own life as a forfeit, becoming a servant to Jacob's family or submitting to an execution. Perhaps the father could have offered himself as a substitute in that same manner for his son. Clearly, this proposed arrangement, the circumcision of all the males, a marriage for Dinah, it was not enough to make amends for Dinah's brothers. For true restitution, 
something more, a more important, a bigger sacrifice was required. This is why the atoning work of Jesus Christ, which comes to us in the, later on in the New Testament, is such good news. Because at the end of the day, the mechanism by God, by which God ends the cycle of offense and retribution is Jesus' death and resurrection. Because when we are faced with debts we cannot pay, and when our debtors come to us hat in hand, pockets turned out, unable to make mends, we now have blood to pay with that isn't our own. Jesus Christ died to bring restitution for all the world's unpayable moral injuries. For all the unsolvable ethical quandaries and unrepairable offenses, Jesus Christ steps forward to say, I will take responsibility for this matter with my own life. And so for the first time in human history, we find a benefactor of heavenly proportions who can step in, who can make things right and who can actually navigate these very complex, line-crossing, moral injuries um, in a way that could maybe actually bring about restitution. Look, I won't pretend to imagine how Jesus' death and resurrection would have changed this dynamic between Hamor and Jacob and their families. On the one hand, I don't want to degrade the seriousness of the sexual assault by glibly suggesting, oh, Jesus died and rose again, that makes everything better. On the other hand, I don't want to limit the miraculous power of reconciliation that comes around when Jesus is involved. And so here's what I would offer maybe as an example of something that is beyond hope, beyond expectation, but a very tangible way in which God's reconciling work can, can do miraculous um, things when the line is crossed. I want to offer you this story in closing today. And it's a story that's haunted me uh, when I heard it. And I hope it haunts you by the Holy Ghost in a good way when you hear it as well. It's a story about gang violence that starts in 1993 when Mary Johnson's son was killed in a gang-related drive-by. He was 20 years old. And two days later, there was a young man named O'Shea Israel. He was 16 years old, and he was arrested for the murder. He was tried and convicted for the crime, and the sentence, at the sentencing hearing, the mother, Mary Johnson, relayed the tension she felt between losing her son, her only son, and the Christian demand to forgive. She said this, You know what? If my son had taken your life, I would expect him to pay the cost, Mary said. And then I ended up telling him that I forgave him. The word says in order to be forgiven, you must forgive. So I said, okay, I have to tell him. But I wanted him locked up, caged, because he was an animal, and that is what he deserved. And so O'Shea Israel was sentenced to 25 years in prison at age 16 for this murder. Johnson, the, the mother here, relayed the anger and the hatred that she felt toward this guy. And I don't think it's any different than the anger and the rage that Dinah's brothers felt. She said this, The grieving process... I think it began for me after the trial, said Mary. Wave after wave after wave, the tsunami of just stuff. Hatred. Here I am, a Christian woman, and I hated this 16-year-old boy, and I never thought I would be put back together. All this went down in the mid-90s, but things began to shift for Mary in the mid-2000s. She was a volunteer at the church, and the pastor asked her to leave a Bible study, lead a Bible study at the church on the topic of forgiveness. And she said, I'm leading this Bible study, and I'm hearing, Mary, 
You need to repent. You need to repent for all these things that you've said about this young man. All these feelings that you've had for him. And I'm like, I have a right to have those feelings. Then I heard, Mary, pray for him like you pray for yourself. I'm praying for him, okay? So I prayed for him like I prayed for myself. And then I heard, every time his name comes up, every time you hear it within yourself, say, I choose to forgive. So I repented. And I really believe it was true repentance. It was for real. It was for real. Unbeknownst to her, at that very same time, she's praying for her son's murderer. The murderer himself, O'Shea Israel, is having his own awakening in prison. He says, I started coming into myself. I started maturing. With maturity, I decided I wanted to hold myself accountable and be responsible for my actions. So three years after beginning to lead this Bible study, Mary calls up the Department of Corrections to meet with the man who killed her son. I have to make sure I have truly forgiven him, that I don't have all the hatred, Mary said. And when the two met, they got to know each other. They spent hours together sharing about the hardships of that shooting that happened a decade prior. At the end of the meeting, O'Shea requested something from the mother of the boy he killed, something audacious and yet something so simple. He requested a hug. Mary Johnson remembers this. I do remember falling, and he had to hold me. He had to hold me up until I felt this thing leave me. And instantly I knew all that hatred, the bitterness, the animosity, all that junk I had inside of me for 12 years, I knew it was over with. I was done. Instantly, it was gone. Fast forward to today. Not only have O'Shea and Mary reconciled, but they're neighbors. They live next door to each other. Mary claims that O'Shea is the lost son, the replacement son uh, to the son that she lost. And O'Shea claims Mary to be the mother he never had when he was growing up. And the two, the duo, they travel across the country together, speaking on the power of forgiveness and the importance of reconciliation to bring peace to violent neighborhoods. They run support groups for families, for mothers who've lost their children to gang violence. And you see, all of this could have ended just like it did in the book of Genesis today, in Genesis 34, with retribution, um, with smug satisfaction for the fact that at the end of the day, one family lost and the other family won. But instead, the beauty of what Jesus did, the beauty of reconciliation, the beauty of a new life given to these two people, who, apart from Jesus, would be nothing but mortal enemies, Uh, It brings peace and it brings hope and it brings comfort even in the darkest of situations. And so I have to think that if Jesus can bring this kind of healing and reconciliation to Mary and O'Shea, there has to be some sort of hope that he can bring a peace out of situations like the one in our reading today. Not all situations of gross injustice need to be met with violent retribution. And not all grudges and resentments are worth holding on to. In a story where no peaceful solution could be arranged for the offenses of an ancient prince, the prince of heaven offers himself as the guilty party. God himself has died to make a way for you to be freed from the eternal and even some temporal consequences of your failures. In his resurrection, we might just find some hope for hopeless situations, hopeless situations like the one in our reading today.
the great moral quandaries and the greatest moral injustices are not without hope for reconciliation. All things can be reconciled as long as Jesus himself has risen from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Pennsylvania.